Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast celebrating the lesser known and lesser appreciated Charlie. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me my co-host PT Imstod. I would firstly like to apologise if anyone here is screaming during this podcast because I have a family of foxes that are just outside this window here <laughs> in my shared garden and sometimes they scream. So if you hear anything that gets picked up on my mic, it's it's not anyone in distress. It's just some some animals. <laughs> just so like no, carvings in your back garden. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what will actually happen. I'll be thinking it's a fox, but really there's someone in a fedora outside murdering a neighbour. Ouch. And I, I think there's definitely going to be a film called The Quarantine Murders or The Lockdown Murders, <laughs> which I'm not looking forward to. So how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Not too much going on here, obviously. As I think I said last time, I've been watching a few films on Zoom with some friends and we'd done Prom Night 1 and 2 and since we last spoke, I've done Prom Night 3 and 4 mm. and let's just say that they're not the best <laughs> films in the series. Not <laughs> films I'm going to pick up on Blu-ray anytime soon. So decreasing quality then from 1 and 2? De- yeah, quite bad decreasing quality. And now we're going to do the Prom Night reboot which, <laughs> like more or less everybody on Letterboxd that I follow, has given it a half to one star. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting. No, you don't have high hopes then for that one. I don't really have high hopes for that one. But I have seen some good stuff, though, because I've watched a few Eckhart Schmidt films, obviously seen The Fan before and really liked that. But for some reason, I never really ventured into his filmography. But I've seen Loft and The Gold of Love uh, recently and Generation as well, which is out on Blu-ray now. So really been enjoying those, especially Loft and The Gold of Love. Yeah, they're they're really brilliant films, aren't they? I think he's probably a director that not a lot of people know outside of The Fan, but... I think even like a lot of our listeners would probably enjoy his work, especially that 1980s trilogy with the kind of surrealist avant-garde horror approach. Um, very visceral yeah. films and the sound design, even if you're not massively like in tune with sound design, I think the sound design and music in those films is particularly impressive. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's not like anything else, really, especially Gold of Love kind of blew me away. Yeah, really impressive stuff. Just one of those films that we're just not sure if we'll ever see on Blu-ray, but you never know. Stranger things have happened. Yeah, fingers crossed. I think a lot of people would enjoy those, especially if you enjoy The Fan, which is out on Blu-ray from Mondo Macabre, obviously. That's about what I get up to these days. I keep thinking about food and I keep thinking about which film I'm going to see and that's about it. I know, it's a thing of always going to the fridge, looking in it. Yeah. My sister is getting married or she's supposed to be getting married in October and I'm supposed to be losing some weight for my bridesmaid's dress, but this lockdown has derailed my fitness plans quite considerably. So I'm going to be yeah, in a, in a mood by the time this wedding comes around. Well, everybody's going to be able to blame this situation anyway, so I don't think you have to worry. Perfect excuse, yeah. Yeah, it is. What have you been up to? Not much, really. Still at home. We just got announced today that our lockdown is, is being slightly eased um, next week. Yeah. So I'll be able to see my mum and dad from a distance. That'll be good. So looking forward to that. Other than that, I've just been uh, watching films like yourself, been kind of revisiting a lot of Japanese and South Korean horror yeah just because I used to watch a lot of as a teenager and I kind of felt this need to revisit some of those films that's been quite nice although you start to see them with that nostalgic lens which is slightly disconcerting compared to originally and obviously a lot of them are technology based like Marabito and Phone and Ringu obviously and then you start to like realize like how outdated it all is but I think they still work they're still effective there's one called Black Kiss by what's his name 
Makato Tezuka, I think. That's from 2004, okay. and it's probably worth a, a watch if you're into into Shally, actually, because although I'm not going to say it's like influenced by the Shadow or anything and bandy all that about, but it's got some similarities I think people would appreciate. It's very suspenseful and quite visually interesting, so I would recommend that. Ah, cool. Yeah. Not much on the new release front. We talked a little bit about the Lency box set in the latest Patreon episode, but it deserves a mention here as well, because that's obviously going to be one of the releases of the year. Yeah, it would be uh, hard-pressed to get a better release than that, really, I think, in 2020. Orgasmo, A Quiet Place to Kill, So Sweet, So Perverse, and Knife of Ice. That's an amazing lineup. Plus, we get the soundtracks too. And a t-shirt, if you order yeah. the special edition like us. Yeah, so really, really looking forward to that. And then uh, Macabre from 88 Films is that with liner notes by you. Yes, which <laughs> is exciting yeah. to see. It's good to see like people finally getting them coming through their letterboxes. Um, I've not had mine yet. I don't know if it's coming or not, but hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that since the Anchor Bay days. So. Oh, yeah, going back. I was going to say for me, it was that Arrow release on DVD. That must be going back a bit as well. Yeah. Nice to see actually that it's come out. I'm hoping we get more Lamberto Bava films. We'll see. I'm not sure. I always want like a Midnight Killer slash Midnight Ripper, You'll Die at Midnight, whatever you want to call it, um, release. But I, I just, I'm not convinced that we will see that. And I know a lot of people want a Bravado Shadow release as well. But again, I'm not sure just because of the fact they're kind of television productions. You'll Die at Midnight, that definitely would find an audience, I think. Yeah, I think it'd be a lot more popular than it is if people knew about it or had watched it. I mean, I know a lot of people listening will probably have seen it, but I think it would probably tap in quite well to more of like the mainstream horror audience yeah anything else no is that all the releases i'm trying to think you're better like with this than me no i think that's it i think arrow are announcing titles tomorrow so we'll see if there's anything italian in that lineup hopefully because there's been a little while since arrow released yeah i have a feeling there might be something on the horizon but we'll we'll wait and see yeah and we've been lucky enough to have some new patrons as well and we're really grateful to all of you for joining the patron gang so we'd like to say a big thank you to brian fitzpatrick ewan curry johnny larkin from the screaming queens podcast mabusa cast stephen mcgill katie mclaughlin hospitality kester michael gallagher and and Ian Coglan, thank you so much to all of you for pledging and supporting us. Yeah, thank you so much. We're really excited to have you become patrons of the show. We're very grateful. Thanks. So, I suppose we should get into the main event then, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think we should. As always, we'll be talking about today's film in detail, so there will be spoilers in the podcast. So, the film we're talking about tonight is Paolo Cavara's E Tanta Pora, aka Plot of Fear. Ruth mi ha parlato di lei. Mi ha detto che è un poliziotto, un piedi piatti. Uno sbirro, insomma un pig. Modestamente. Però prima, prima di dormire io ho sempre l'abitudine di fare l'amore. Anch'io. Disinvolto. Quest'anello è un bellissimo solitario. Sì, che cos'altro vuol sapere? Molto grande e di grande purezza. Although the title roughly translates in English to In So Much Fear or In Lots of Fear. 
Uh, the film is Cavara's second giallo, the first being the more traditional Black Belly of the Tarantula in 1971. And Plot of Fear was released in 1976, which is post the genre's golden period. And as we've noted quite a few times now, this was a period where the thrillers from Italy were perhaps starting to deviate more from the traditional trope-heavy spate of films that we saw during the boom period. And during this time in Italian cinema, we were seeing a boom in the Italian crime filmmaking, the Poliziotechi. And there is definitely an influence here in Plot of Fear. The Poliziotechi was almost an update of the spaghetti western, transposing the stories of law and order in the Wild West to the major Italian cities of the 1970s and 1980s. They primarily focused on law enforcement and the often unorthodox methods used to apprehend criminals by the police and vigilante citizens. The success of American films such as Dirty Harry had a huge impact on the Italian crime film and led to their subsequent production and rising popularity. These films typically contained themes of corruption, lawlessness, as well as social change and upheaval during the volatile years of lead. The majority of Poliziotechi films were about mafia wars, gang rivalry, political corruption and drug cartels, and the struggle law enforcement had in tackling these issues, often taking matters into their own hands. Car chases, gun shootouts and heists were staple elements of the Italian crime film and were characterised by their over-the-top bloody style of violence. And the reason the Poliziotechi is relevant in the discussion of Plot of Fear is that the film is sort of a hybrid of it in the giallo. A lot of the elements I've mentioned are present in Plot of Fear. It's not your typical giallo, and we'll be touching on these elements throughout the podcast. Um, and there are quite a few other films of the period that fuse these genres together. One of the most obvious would be Massimo D'Alemano's What Have They Done to Your Daughters in 1974. Now, Cavara's son, Pietro Cavara, noted that although his father made many genre films, he typically tried to reject the stereotypes of the genres he was working within, and tended towards experimenting somewhat with the films that he made. And this is evident in Plot of Fear, which straddles several genres, as I've mentioned. There's not only elements of the Italian thriller here, but also nods to the more conspiratorial thrillers that were coming through at the time from America. And then there's erotic elements here as well. Um, there's more overt critiques of the bourgeoisie class, with quite distinct juxtapositions between them and the proletariat. So a fair amount of social commentary is evident in the film. And at times it's quite humorous and we get the social satire alongside it. So it's fairly aware as a film. So as far as Plot of Fear is concerned, it's a film that doesn't adhere to a traditional giallo blueprint. If anything, Cavara plays with the form of the giallo. As a filmmaker, it was important for Cavara to not make stereotypical genre film in the mould of his peers. And although Black Belly of the Tarantula is far more typical of what we consider to be the giallo, what makes Plot of Fear interesting is how it utilises aspects of the popular thriller of the early 1970s and reconstitutes them into something unique. That's a great introduction. Thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about Paola Cavara, and that might help explain why we get some of these elements that you so eloquently discussed in the introduction. Right. Cavara was born in Bologna on July 4th in 1926, and he got involved in the film industry in the 50s when he was studying architecture at the University of Florence. He was involved in the making of a number of documentaries abroad in Ceylon and in other places where he worked with, for example, Franco Prosperi. During the latter half of the 1950s, he worked as an assistant director on a number of documentaries as well as on a number of feature films in the same capacity. And in the early 1960s, he was one of the creative minds behind the highly successful Mondo Carne, which was shot for Angelo Rizzoli's Cineritz. The film, as you all know, became a big worldwide success. In Italy, it made about 800 million lira at the box office, and it started an avalanche of Mondo film. Cavaro's name tends to be overlooked in favour of perhaps the more well-known Prosperian Gualtiero 
wrote Giacopetti, but he was in fact one of the directors that shot the most amount of material for the film. During the filming of Monte Carlo, Cavara was involved in a car accident with Giacopetti and actress Belinda Lee near San Bernardino in California, where she unfortunately passed away. And she was later thanked in their La Donna del Mondo, The Women of the World. Footage from Cavara was also used in Monte Carlo too. The break with Prosperi and Giacopetti reportedly took place while in Congo when Giacopetti allegedly stopped a public execution in order to get a better position for the camera, an incident that Giacopetti denies ever took place. After the break with Prosperi and Giacopetti, Cavara continued working in the Mondo genre making Il Malamondo, which had mediocre domestic box office takings in 1964. His next project was Locchio Selvaggio, The Wild Eye, released in 1967, a partly autobiographical and both self-reflective and self-critical look at documentary filmmakers and the ambiguity towards the Mondo film and its creators. The film found great success at the Moscow Film Festival and won first prize at an Atlanta Film Festival, but it failed to make a dent at the Italian box office, making a poor return. It's one of the few Cavara films available on Blu-ray from Scorpion releasing, but there's a long-promised camera obscura edition on the way that will feature a new transfer and some interesting extras. Two years later, in 1969, he directed La Catura, or The Ravine, starring David McCallum. It's a war drama about a German sniper who's sent to catch a female Yugoslavian sniper played by Nicoletta Machiavelli, who she says herself is fighting with, not for the Russians. It's a slow-burn, almost contemplative film with some melodramatic elements, which, which might be a bit too much for some people, but I think it's one of Cavara's finest films and one of the best Italian war films I've seen. It fared quite poorly at the Italian box office, unfortunately, and it's quite hard to come by now. I've only ever seen a crop version, which is a shame because it features some breathtaking cinematography by Tomislav Pinter, so this one really deserves a decent release and a wider audience. As you mentioned, Rachel, in 1971, Cavara directed his first Jallo, the very appreciated and fairly successful Black Belly of the Tarantula, a quite conventional Jallo that adhered very much to the template set by Argento and the rules of the genre to a much greater extent than the film we're going to discuss on this episode. He followed it with another commercial film in 1973, Def Smith and Johnny Ace, a possible but tonally quite strange western starring Anthony Quinn and Frank Nero in full-on comedy mode, a role that also reunited Nero with Pamela Tiffin, who he'd starred with in The Fifth Chord, did decent box office, making 421 million lira. But Cavara found his greatest commercial success in 1974 with comedies Virilità and Il Lumacone. And in 1975, he returned to the Giallo with Etanta Paura. The film is based on an idea by Cavara, and he started writing with Enrico Aldini. It was Aldini's first credit, and he also plays Michele Placido's assistant in the film, before they brought in Bernardino Saponi, an experienced script writer who had previously worked with Fellini on Spirits of the Dead, Satyricon and Roma, as well as Dario Argento on Profondo Rosso. He would also go on to write Anima Persa, Dino Risi. Cavara had complete creative freedom on this film since he'd both developed the idea and written the script and the film was a co-production with Emano Curtis CPC with diamond merchant Rodolfo Punanini and Rodolfo Giannini and with GPE Enterprises a company that had been formed by Cavara together with Guy Longo and Enrico Aldini in May 1975 and Plot of Fear was their first project. It's really good it's actually really interesting you've uncovered a lot of fascinating information there especially like it's nice to have that information surrounding the production itself 
And I think people will really appreciate the film by understanding that it was a personal film for Kavara and that he did have that creative control, um, which is almost quite unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I would assume so. And like you say, it's a quite different film from Black Belly and the Tarantula. I could see some people coming away being slightly disappointed by this because it's not a by-the-numbers giallo. But at the same time, you have to, to really admire the fact that he did what he wanted to do and wasn't constrained in any way by the producer's wishes. He could just have this creative freedom and do what he wanted to. Yeah, and that's what makes Plot of Fear interesting. Like you said, I think some people don't like the fact it's not very by the numbers, especially compared to Black Belly of the Tarantula, although you can see a natural progression of some of the ideas there in Plot of Fear. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's more creatively interesting. And as we'll get into later on, I think, you know, we then get some political and social commentary that you might not see so overtly. Um, something that was more um, heavily producer kind of influenced. And you could see why a producer wanting a film to be a success to remove those elements because they want to appeal to the broadest possible audience. And Mm -hmm. it's understandable that political ideas could potentially turn some elements of, of the audience away. So... I'll briefly give a synopsis of the film. Um, I usually write these myself, but I thought Luigi Cozzi did quite a good job of capturing the synopsis in his Jalo Movies book. So I've just taken that and made a few changes. I think when you try and sit down and actually write the synopsis for this, it's a bit more tricky because the the narrative jumping around in the flashbacks. Um, So I just kind of use that instead. So here we go. A middle-aged sadomasochist is strangled in his apartment by a prostitute. Then a woman is savagely killed on a bus with a wrench. In both cases, the police find near the body the pages of an old fairy tale, Heinrich Hoffmann's shock-headed Peter. The victims had apparently been murdered for no reason, yet they all knew each other and were part of an organisation called the Fauna Club, whose associates belonged to the upper classes. The commissioner on the case, Inspector Lomenzo, finds a link between the murders and the mysterious death of a young prostitute which took place at Villa Hoffman, where the Fauna Club used to gather and whose owner has disappeared. Meanwhile, the prostitute who committed the first murder is attacked in a park and burned alive. Another murder takes place on television during a talk show. Lomenzo finds out that Villa Hoffman was the site of many orgies, during one of which the prostitute accidentally died. After another murder, Lomenzo arrests the prostitute's pimp, but the killings continue. Lomenzo must now work out how the murders are connected and the role that the Fauna Club had in the proceedings, but in his investigations he finds that nothing is quite as it seems. Now that you've all been reminded of the plot, I think we should do a rundown of the players. And do you want to start? I can start if you'd like. So we have Corrine Clary as Jean. Corrine Clary, born as Corrine Marie Madeleine Genevieve Pirette Piccolo, is a French actress who began her career in the late 1960s. She came to prominence in 1975 due to her leading role in the Franco-German erotic film The Story of O, which was based on the famous novel of the same name by Pauline Reage, which was rather controversial at the time due to the risky nature of the material. This led to subsequent film roles for Cleary alongside modelling work in the latter half of the 1970s. Now, if you listened to our previous episode of Fragments of Fear on Mystere, you'll note some similarities here between Karine and Carol Bouquet both French actresses of a similar age working in the same period, but most notably, like Bouquet, Karine is probably best known internationally for her role as a Bond girl in the James Bond franchise. Cleary played pilot Karine Defour in the 1979 film Moonraker. Throughout her career, Cleary predominantly appeared in Italian productions. After Plot of Fear in 1976, she was in Aldo Lado's science fiction opus The Humanoid, alongside fellow Bond girl Barbara Back, who is in Cavara's Black Belly of the Tarantula. And you can always find links between Italian genre cinema and the James Bond series. It's probably like a game or something. <laughs> um, Cleary was also in Lucio Fulci's The Devil's Honey, Pasquale Festa Campanile's Hitchhike, and Carlo Lozani's Kleinhoff Hotel. She was in a fair number of Italian comedies in the 1980s and 1990s, and was involved in a couple of Carlo Vincina's 1980s comedies, which we briefly 
discussed in our last episode. More recently, she's done television work, such as soaps and reality TV, and was in a series of Italian celebrity Big Brother alongside Serena Grande, who will be a familiar name to fans of Italian 1980s genre fair and quiz shows. And there's quite a nice interview with Cleary on the plot of Fear, a Cinepoint release, if you're interested in hearing more about her experiences. Next up, Inspector Gaspare Lomenso, who's played by Michele Placido. Placido was born in Ascoli Satriano in 1946, the third of eight brothers in a poor family. And after high school, at the age of 18, he moved to Rome and entered the police force, but left for theatrical studies at the National Academy of Dramatic Arts and made his stage debut in A Midsummer's Night's Dream in 1970. After some television appearances, he made his film debut in Mario Monicelli's Romanzo Popolare alongside Ugo Tognazzi and Ornella Muti, and he continued to work in a number of films during the 1970s, including Plot of Fear. It's likely surprising that he appeared in the film at all, since it was a self-proclaimed snob towards the thriller genre, much preferring the films of Bertolucci or Bergman to thrillers. In 1989, he married actress Simonetta Stefanelli, best known for a role as Apollonia Vitelli Corleone in The Godfather, and they stayed married until 1994. But the role that really made him a household name in Italy, as well as abroad, was as police commissioner Corrado Catini in Damiano Damiani's La Piovra, The Octopus. In the 1990s, he played Giovanni Falcone in Giuseppe Ferrara's film, as well as a appearing in Arrivederci Amore, Ciao by Michele Suave. In 1990, he made his debut as a director with a film about labour exploitation of non-EU citizens, and he's directed a number of films, including Romanzo Criminale, and in 2017, he directed the first two episodes of the Netflix series Suburra, the first Italian production on Netflix. Also appearing is Eli Wallach as Peter Struvel or Pietro Riccio, depending a little bit on which version of the film you see. It looks like Eli Wallach was not the first choice, actually, to star as Riccio. It was reported in Variety on October 15th, 1975, that Anthony Quinn was supposed to star in Cavara's upcoming film. It seems likely that it would have been in the Wallach role. However, just a week later, it was reported that Wallach had been cast. Wallach worked in show business for 62 years, meaning he has one of the longest ever careers in show business. He was born in 1915 in Red Hook, New York, and he grew up as the only Polish-Jewish family in a predominantly Italian-American neighbourhood. He got into acting while at university and started studying method acting under Sanford Meissner, and he later became one of the funding members of the actor studio. His film debut was in Elia Kassan's Baby Doll, starring at Carol Baker, but he is perhaps best known for his role as Tuco in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, and he was one of Hollywood's most prolific and celebrated character actors. He passed away in 2014 at the age of 98, survived by his wife of 66 years, Anna Jackson. So alongside Jean, Inspector Lomenzo and Riccio, we have John Steiner, who plays the nefarious Hoffman. And if you'd like to hear more about Steiner, we talk about him in greater detail in our Mysterio episode. Other actors that are of note in the film are American actor and MASH star Tom Skerritt, is the chief inspector. There's also familiar faces such as the distinctive looking French actor Jacques Erlen, who plays Pandolfi, and who I always personally remember from Elio Petri's The Tenth Victim. And then there's faces such as Sarah Crespi, who plays Rosa. Crespi was only in a few films, but some of them were quite memorable or notorious, shall we say, for their content like Madness, The Children of Violent Rome and Nazi Love Camp 27. And another familiar female face for some of you will be Greta Vian as one of the members of the club. And she was in quite a few Italian productions such as Pupi Avati's Giallo Parody, Tutti di Fonte, Trane e Morte. And finally, a very familiar face will be Maria Tedeschi, who plays Angelo's mother, um, who of course you'll know as the elderly women who we frequently see in the Giallo. And she appeared in films 
such as the case of the bloody iris, Dario Argento's Il Tram, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and The Fifth Chord. Love her. I know. You always love to see her face. She always pops up in where you don't expect her to. Yeah, she's great. Very expressive looking. She just has that distinctive face where I think she's one of those people that a lot of people wouldn't know her name, but they would know her face. Yeah. Right, so shall we get stuck in? Yeah, let's see where to begin in this film that we have quite a lot to talk about. So we might as well get stuck into the character of Inspector Lomenzo as he's pivotal to the film's plot. And I suppose Inspector Lomenzo isn't what I'd consider to be your traditional giallo police inspector. Uh, when we compare him to the sort of characterizations present in the Italian crime film of the period or the Italian thriller, um, he's a very different character, albeit the fact he's a protagonist obviously um, has bearing on that. Um, he isn't this big macho presence, uh, even from appearance alone he feels quite far removed from the figure that Franco Nero or Maurizio Murley would call. He's somewhat of a natural progression of Inspector Tellini in the black belly of the tarantula and both characters are examples of police inspector characters who are a bit more fleshed out that aren't there solely for comic purposes or to suddenly appear at the film's resolution after being largely absent for most of the proceedings. Cavara's son Pietro Cavara stated that the character of Inspector Lomenzo was a reaction against the death wish style protagonist of the time that he was an example of a character that wasn't necessarily heroic or an avenger but someone that's flawed and human and we said that Lomenzo isn't your traditional macho cop and the film seems to explore ideas pertaining to masculinity especially in regards to someone in a hyper masculine position such as a police inspector on the surface Lomenzo feels like an aggressive cop who chastises those around him but he's revealed to be somewhat of a sensitive soul I would say at least in a romantic sense Uh, the women in his life seem far more flippant in regards to love with his lover Ruth leaving him to fly off with photographer Evelyn who she kisses in front of uh, Lomenzo at the nightclub Uh, Jeanne refers to him as a pussycat and seems surprised when he develops feelings for her so we feel that the women are maybe in more of the masculine role there than Lomenzo is I would say and in his role as a police inspector he seems at times lacking physically he struggles to climb over a wall and subsequently hurts himself he struggles in his altercation with Agostino the pimp and even in handcuffs Agostino seems to be more powerful than Lomenzo so as an inspector Lomenzo feels different to many of the heroic action hero types we're accustomed to he's a flawed character and somewhat ordinary but that's arguably what makes him compelling his mental prowess and logic is what makes him a great inspector not his physical crime fighting ability there's some great points made there it's interesting how you discuss these changes that italian society was going through at the time and lamenzo as you say he's not your typical police commissioner hero in any way like i say he's a progression of of inspector what's his name again from black belly of the tarantula tallini of inspector tallini like the the single version of him or not single but unmarried version of him Mm -hmm. you can tell the italian man is going through some changes the way his girlfriend serves him microbiotic food instead of the traditional italian pasta because it's not good for you and the the emerging feminism at the time leaves Lomenzo in a much more uncertain position as the women seem to be in far greater control of his relationship than what I assume the Italian man was used to at the time. His girlfriend is saying, then we can have sex if I want to, being very much left to Sean's whims on if she wants to see him or not. Without being sure, I can imagine that as an Italian macho man in the 1970s, being on the bottom while the woman is the one on top and in control during sex does not exactly fit in with that macho perception of manhood. Yeah, I agree with all those points. I think it's really interesting how that's conveyed through the film, as you said, from all aspects of his life. And even when we see him at the dinner table with his pasta, when he shunned the microbiotic food, he's just squeezing a tube of tomato paste. Yeah. And then it's really depressing and he seems inept. 
Yeah, it feels a bit, a bit like he's been left behind. Not that he's a relic of the past, but yeah, like you say, trying to adapt to this new world and find this place in it where women are suddenly a lot more powerful and he's somewhat emasculated and he's the romantic, sensitive one and they don't really need him. And you don't see too many depictions of that. I know sometimes we talk about it in the podcast, you know, examples where you find something a bit more feminist, but I think as a character, Inspector Lomenzo is very different from your typical male characters um, in the Jao. Certainly. And I think on the whole, Plot of Fear is interesting because it offers so much comment on these changing times in Italy. In some ways, I feel like it's a non-thriller thriller, if you get what I mean. It feels Mm -hmm. like the thriller elements are there, obviously, and it is a giallo, but they take a backseat to other aspects that Kavara is sort of more interested in exploring, I feel. Yeah, it's not going by the numbers, is it? It's trying to make a social comment. It's trying to examine those changing times and look at the political situation, the social situation and like we discussed previously that's because Kavara had the freedom to tackle these themes in his film and he wasn't constrained by going through the motions he could make a larger kind of political point here yeah um yeah in the the formula of the giallo or the loose formula of the giallo and other kind of styles at the time and normally this kind of thing isn't really explicitly referenced in Jali. I mean at least not if you compare it to the Poliziotteschi the Anna di Piombo is more explicitly referenced it's obviously here Bourgeois characters from the Fauna Club they live their lives worried about kidnappings and violence and the first victim Grandy is is locked in a flat that's almost like a safe it's the same with another character as well I can't remember who it is now off the top of my head yeah okay thank you (laughs) the other day I watched um, another Jallo from the year before The Sunday Women which is also about these upper class characters and in that film they discuss leaving Italy for Switzerland to escape the violence so Mm -hmm. uh, Anna di Piombo wasn't referenced in these earlier films in the 1970s but by this time though it had sort of caught up with the genre yeah I think it's kind of at the forefront now of you know like political discussion and what was going on and it had to really be addressed I mean and that's why I suppose these crime films the, the environment obviously they were taken from America but the environment that they were kind of produced in very much reflected those politically uneasy times yeah and yeah like when we talk about the bourgeoisie or political um, strands of these films they're obviously in the shallow. I mean the shallow is known for the commentary on you know the differences between the cl- the classes and things like that, but as as you've said, it's a lot more overt here. There's definitely yeah. a political motivation. I'm here more so than other films of its ilk. Again, because we're a wee bit further in time, I think you know most Jali were in the earlier part of the 70s, which was maybe a bit of a freer time, shall we say, compared to yeah. the mid 70s. And that political upheaval is reflected in ideas pertaining to law enforcement and the failings of the law, or perhaps the hypocrisy of those in law enforcement. In Scanavini's meeting with Riccio, he says the police are getting nowhere when it comes to solving the murders and Riccio says as per usual which demonstrates his lack of confidence in the system of law enforcement and how he's had to find other avenues to pursue justice which is interesting in itself as he's only able to do so due to his inordinate um, amounts of wealth which your typical citizen would not have access to so there's a sense of injustice here and the inequalities in justice and later on when Lomenzo meets with Riccio they talk about the casinos and gambling and how gambling is illegal yet the state allows it because they make money off of it so Riccio here is speaking out about the hypocrisy of the law and the willingness to turn a blind eye to legal practices like gambling which make the state money that can be potentially put back into the police. Uh, Potentially there's an idea here about the ends justifying the means or illegal activity being warranted if it serves society at large either financially or via purging the deviants and wrongdoers um, of society. But of course there's moral judgments being made here and it shows how one can manipulate the law 
or their perception of the law to fit into their own worldview. And Riccio applies his thoughts of hypocrisy in the law further when he chastises Lomenzo for smoking smuggled cigarettes, demonstrating that officers of the law often don't adhere to it, despite punishing others for their transgressions. And the character of Pandolfi, aka Del Rey, is another example of how Cavara examines the people who enforce the law and how their personal lives and grievances can manifest in their work and their worldview. Del Rey is a man whose career in the police was ruined, who wasn't able to apprehend the criminals he was investigating, therefore sought in his life as a private investigator to rectify what he views as a miscarriage of justice. So there's political motivations here behind the crimes, but there's also something personal. Del Rey's identity was taken away from him. His sense of justice became... I suppose you could say somewhat warped by what happened to him. He is haunted by the criminals he failed to apprehend, so he has taken this approach of pursuing these individuals as a private citizen under the guise of private investigator. He sees himself as a moral arbitrator, stating, Italy needs a saviour, discipline is what it needs. So obviously there's ideas here about vigilantism and, and who is given or should be given the power to wield justice and how that's decided. And there's a duality presented here about the criminal versus the law enforcer. When Riccio introduces members of his agency, he says he employs a former policeman and a murderer, seeing them both negatively in two sides of the same coin. Um, there also seem This also seems like foreshadowing as we learn that the former police inspector is a murderer at the film's conclusion. Cavara explores this idea of duality and this is echoed in the film's end in which it said that the line separating honest people from thieves is a fine one. The message here is that we're all corruptible no matter the position we are in and I think that's especially pertinent to Italy in the mid-1970s. Yeah certainly. I think it's interesting when you think that Cavara started out as a documentary filmmaker you sort of wonder how much he brought that in here in terms of wanting to reflect the changes society was going through and um, putting that in a feature film. It feels very much like he's documenting these these changes. I'm not sure about you but I don't necessarily see outright criticism or as much as I see documenting the changes that society is going through, not really judging them that much. Yeah. How do you feel about it? No, I certainly agree. And it's something I put in my notes and actually took out. And I, I said that I think depending maybe on your political views, you would take different things away from this film. I think there's a moral yeah. ambiguity about it. And like you say, that documentary-esque kind of approach to the film. Obviously, there's certain, I suppose you could say, critiques because we're maybe not supposed to see these people in a positive light. No. Yeah, I think he's showing, like I said that there, that everyone is corruptible. And I suppose it depends on your definition of who is corrupt and what's corrupt behaviour and your definitions of what's deviant and what's not. So yeah, I think that's why the film's probably quite right for analysis is because it's not making cast iron moral judgments. And the political uncertainty of the time almost manifests in a sort of conspiratorial strand that runs throughout the film. The image of Riccio surveying a bank of monitors demonstrates that pervasive paranoid feeling plot fear. The voyeur is positioned in a slightly different way from your typical giallo. In this instance, as an almost omnipresent force who watches things unfold via new technology. We have someone watching at a distance, pulling the puppet strings from afar, and there's this idea of machinations at play. In our first introduction to Riccio, he requests that Pandolfi records the conversation he's about to have with Scanavini, which again establishes that this environment 
is one of surveillance and where secrets are recorded. Despite Riccio's claim that the information will remain secret, we as the audience question this, as we know such information can be weaponized. Riccio himself says that his private business pays for equipment that the state can never afford. So here, private business facilitates the public sector by potentially offering information that could not be obtained as easily by the state. But of course, this also potentially circumvents the law, and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about, law enforcement, and who's the moral arbiter. What's particularly chilling in Plot of Fear is Riccio's statement that you can control a city with just a telephone, It shows how technology can be utilised to control and manipulate others and the power of information. And it's interesting because, as we mentioned earlier, there seems to be an influence here from the political conspiracy thrillers of the period. There was a highly charged political climate, not just in Italy, but across Europe at the time, um, in countries such as France and Germany as well. And they all had their different groups associated with them. I think in the remake of Suspirius, it kind of focuses on that a wee bit, actually. Yeah, the RAF. Yeah, And it was obviously the years of lead in Italy, so it fostered this environment of mistrust of those in positions of authority. And I think people started to question systematic structures at the time, such as the police and the political ideologies associated with these structures, because of course they do have political ideologies associated with them, despite despite what people might say. So Plot of Fear very much taps into that distrust and paranoia. And it's certainly evident in the character of Riccio and his approach to running the agency through the collection of private information. And this feels like quite a progressive idea nowadays, and one that's very much relevant to questions that arise in modern days about the intersection between private companies and the state when it comes to the collation of the information of private citizens. And how the events of the film play out really taps into the culture of the time and that distrust and paranoia in society during a period where things seemed increasingly uncertain. When you look at the security agency and the police, you see this difference between the two. You've got the police with the endless archives of paper case files where certain files tends to get lost and the slick modern offices of the security agency with the tapes and cameras. And it's sort of pitting the traditional and outdated methods of the Italian police force against these new and sophisticated entrepreneurs with their cutting edge technology. So again, really showing these changing times. Those scenes really appeal to me anyway when you see this, these vast archives with all these people running around and then, like you say, Riccio says he can control a city with a phone and he sits there in his office with hardly any staff, just these cameras and controls and knows everything. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point and it's true. There is a vast difference between the two in many ways the police just can't compete and it does show that intrusion of you know like a private agency on something that's typically a state affair. And that's really well done, you say, just kind of displayed through the design of the different um, locations, but also, yeah, in the actions of the people involved. I um, mean, you know, like the whole fiasco about the Fauna Club papers being lost, and you can't imagine that happening in the high-tech office where Riccio knows everything that's going on and everything's, you know, perfectly preserved. I mean, just yeah. needs to click a button or something, and it's it's almost like, like a spy film or something in terms of the advancements. I'm sure that'd be probably quite impressive at the time to see that this new way of um, archiving information or collating information... Yeah, it's strangely topical as well for a film made in 1975 because it feels like we're very much having this discussion now about all this information that is out there about us and how it could potentially be used against us. And this film is nearly 50 years old. I know, it's crazy, but I think anyone watching this will really maybe think about that off the back of it because 
those issues are still all relevant it's maybe framed in a different way you know it's facebook instead of telephone or whatever but you know the issues are all remain still just as relevant today if we're looking at tropes we once again return to the secret society or a group of the bourgeois or gente perbene respectable upper class in that are in some ways exploiting the the lower classes we've seen it before in short night of glass dolls and to some extent in who saw her die the fifth chord and we return yet again to the fauna lovers who have exploited this young prostitute and killed her off as she found out what they were up to so once again tapping into that sort of fear or mystique around the upper classes and what they're up to behind closed doors yeah exactly i mean the concept of a secret exclusive society plays into those kind of themes in the film like the growing sense of paranoia and division and the illusion of appearances and the moral decay of society so I suppose we should talk a little bit about the Fauna Lovers Club in detail because I think that's another aspect of the film that really um, stays with you after watching it. So the Fauna Lovers Club is this hedonistic paradise which almost in name alone signifies the return to baser instincts back to nature and embracing one's sexual proclivities without shame. There's something quite disconcerting about the practices that go on there, the way the members all dress in luxurious jewel purples which almost signify royalty and they're of course dripping with ostentatious diamond jewellery and furs. They're clearly from the upper echelons of society but in the setting they seem to have this veneer of civility which quickly descends into an almost Romanesque style orgy. We have this bizarre cartoon that's played for the members in which a strange green goblin creature indulges in sadomasochistic behaviours with torturous sexual implements. This is an erotic insert created by the Italian animator Francesco Maurizio Guido aka Giba titled Bloody Peanuts and I think Bloody Peanuts is an alternative title for Plot of Fear itself isn't it? There's a bit of confusion sometimes about that but the Italian film critic Marco Giusti said in Bloody Peanuts the great Giba broke out in all kinds of sadomasochistic excess which I think is very apt to describe it. And the projection of the film is an interesting way of conveying the deviant nature of the club. Instead of just repeatedly showing us their depraved practices in person, it's just kind of framing it in a different way, I suppose. The treatment of Rosa and the dining table scene is important here as it shows the fauna lovers' sex games and practice and shows the humiliation involved with the club and the exploitation of the vulnerable working class Rosa against the upper class members of the club. It feels almost at times like Pasolini's Sego and its barbarity and the mixing of sexual humiliation sadomasochistic practice and political commentary and the theme of decadent perversion is evident from the film's opening scene in which Matty reads an excerpt from Giacomo Battiato's E Decadente which is a collection of essays pertaining to decadence in European society in Matty's murder scene he mistakenly thinks the prostitute is there to indulge sadomasochistic whims before realizing that the pain she's inflicting on him is to kill him So there's somewhat of a conflation here between violent acts, the fauna club and sexual deviancy and decadence. I suppose like we kind of touched on, there's this idea of like society changing and maybe like this moral decay coming in at this point. And that kind of extends outside of the club. Like as we talked about again with Lomenzo seeming at odds with the sexually permissive society around him, where monogamy is seemingly non-existent, where people openly masturbate and couples fornicate outside in front of children. I think that's what I find quite jarring, what I found quite jarring the very first time I saw this is that moment where they drive past and there's a couple having sex and then you see the child just kind of running past and then the bit with the nurse in the in the bathroom which is never really explained is it it's just one of those odd moments which i suppose serves to show that this strange kind of breakdown in in morality perhaps if you want to call it morality again saying words like that i'm making certain judgments but yeah this almost decline in western civilization shall we say (laughs) 
another aspect that I think we should touch on is the humour in the film, because there's quite a lot of humour here, isn't there? Absolutely, I'm glad you brought that up. Perhaps Saponi wasn't an influence here because he managed to inject quite a lot of humour into the script for Fonda Rosso as well. Mm. There are quite a few, I mean, it's not overtly funny, it's not set up to be like a comedy, but there are so many like little quips, like when Scavini is talking to his mother and he goes, how is my mummy dearest? And she goes, how do you think, arsehole? I don't know, it just makes me laugh. Yeah, same. Lots of stuff like that. There's also a running gag where Lamenza constantly bins Tom Skerritt's The Chief Inspector's newspaper. (laughs) You might catch on to that as a non-Italian viewer, but the fact that it's Il Secolo, a right-wing paper, is probably lost on most non-Italian viewers, including Mm -hmm. myself. So it was only when I read that Roberto Curti pointed it out that I really understood the gag. So Lamenta is throwing away his his superior's right-wing newspaper, which I thought was quite funny. (laughs) That's very funny. I I did not pick up on that at all. So it's really interesting to hear that. I like that. Again, it connects it back to this sort of political and social satire that's there in places. Yeah, it's a good example of how many things that like passes us by as as foreign viewers of these films and not knowing what went on in Italy at the time. Yeah, definitely. Although a sight gag that I enjoyed that is more obvious to us as English speaking viewers is the bit where Cavara shows us a close up of the elderly sick mother of Angelo, um, who lies in bed as an advertisement and plays for a product that will give you youthful skin. And you see her looking yeah. decrepit and ill with all her like ailments, and then there's some voiceover going oh yeah and there's this youthful skin cream that you can get or something so that's a really like funny like kind of throwaway gag isn't it yeah quite a few places in this film where when i laughed and so an unusual amount of humor i'd say for a jello it's definitely got a lot of humor in it because i think when we're talking about it or if you talk about out of it side of this bit we're discussing now it probably sounds like quite a bleak film or quite political well it is political but you might lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of like humorous moments in it it's like when we're first introduced to lamenza we have this humorous exchange at the police station where he's trying to find out about Grandy's death by interviewing local prostitutes but he's talking to the wrong ones and they're directing him to another group and saying no they're the sadomasochistic like ones we're just you know regular prostitutes and they're shouting about time at him because of course they know all the different dealings of the various groups of prostitutes in Milan and it feels quite absurd as a scene but I'm pretty funny and shortly after that, one of Lomenzo's colleagues says, in his opinion, that these crimes are influenced by the violence of movies and television. And he says that they can be blamed for our overly permissive society, which ties back to us talking about the kind of degeneracy of society. And that's quite an interesting statement. And it feels like a little bit of humour from Cavara or, you know, the script writers there. It's a bit of a self-aware statement from a director who has directed, you know, like exploitation or horror thriller films like Black Belly of the Tarantula. And it's quite interesting that later on we have this memorable scene in which the members of the fauna club sit and watch bloody peanuts which mirrors their own sadomasochistic practices so it's reflecting that idea of what you're watching on tv may, might dictate how you behave in reality there's also a claim made that violence spreads throughout society via the television and of course we see Picozzi shot on television so that's another connection to this concept of technology's oh, yeah. effect on society how it shapes criminality and law enforcement so perhaps we kind of question his colleague's viewpoint or at least consider it in relation to the film plot you know that idea of what impact does television or film have on you know our morality as a society obviously doing this podcast we're probably not of that opinion but it does make you reflect on that Oh yeah, and then another one I suppose is worth mentioning is when Lomenza's colleague chimes in with their own theories about the motivations of the killer, and another person offers up a Freudian explanation, you know, a typical kind of Argento-style, like, psychological explanation for a killer. 
um, and their crimes. And when they ask who he is, he says that he's a convict. And that's like a nice self-aware gag in the film, but um, the seemingly light joke serves a further purpose when Riccio states that sometimes murderers want to be caught, his words echoing what the criminal said in the police station, indicating that he too is somewhat of a criminal. So suppose the giallo, and I I guess this is speaking in fairly broad stroke, has a reputation as a genre for being violent, certainly, but often that violence is considered to be fairly stylistic, whereas in Plot of Fear it seems to be grounded in a certain sense of realism, and there's nastiness to it, brutality. And I think it's fair to say it feels quite stark in places and perhaps more in keeping with the violence that you typically see in an Italian crime film of the era. For example, the prostitute's death in the park is particularly nasty as a kill, which sees her strangled and then doused in petrol and set alight. And then we see that close-up of her charred face and the gruesome effect of the violence that the violence has resulted in. The bus murder certainly recalls Dario Argento's Il Tram, not just in its similar setting, but also in the use of a black glove killer and the breathy Morricone-style score. So Cavara uses these Jago-esque tropes in the murder and others to trick his audience into believing these are murders taking place in the same vein as the ones we typically see in our Argento film or traditional giallo. But of course he plays with our expectations here and does something very different with the killer. Guevara deconstructs the traditional giallo murder and leads his audience to believe that the killings are being committed by one individual. The shock-headed Peter, a calling card of said killer, when in reality they have been committed by several individuals but orchestrated by one. And in Plot of Fear, violence is often tied to power, to domination, often to masculinity. The abuse of power is certainly at the film's heart, um, and how the various characters, whether it's Riccio, Hoffman, or any of the other characters, wield their power, how they use it to control others. And we can look at that in terms of society itself. There seems to be somewhat of a message here, or something to take away from the film, with Kavara ruminating on how society often is full of these injustices, and that those in control are often morally corrupt, or that we all have that propensity to be corrupted. Like you said, the murders here are quite, they're more in line with Poliziotesky murders than perhaps Giallo murders. The first two murders occurred during the opening credits, more or less, the strangulation and then the brutal murder with a wrench on the bus. But apart from that, like you say, the burning and Picozzi, who's shot live on TV, and Scanavini, who's run down by the car, and Colleani, who's found hanging by the meat hook, they're all murders that would look more at home in a Poliziotesky than, than in a Giallo really and I suppose you could call these set pieces but I, I don't know I just feel like they're more secondary here than in perhaps any other giallo that I've seen they don't seem that important here or at least not to me do you agree with that statement or not no I, I really agree with that actually it's interesting when you reflect back on the film because the film's initially set up in that way where you think there's going to be this series of murders series of set pieces culminating in the reveal of the killer but can I, I don't know if you, I would not even say you get halfway through the film I think it's just you get to a certain point in the film and that's all cast aside and it becomes something so much bigger and it's more about the secret society and these twisted events that have been happening which are tied to the murders but the murders aren't the focus they're more well I think they are like obviously a factor but yeah like you say they're not what you kind of focus on you're kind of thinking of everything else that's going on yeah, I mean Kavara doesn't rush past them Mm-mm. 
but they're not the big theatrical set pieces that you would get from a Sergio Martino or a Dario Argento film. And it's more like crass killing than artful murder. Yeah, exactly. They're a lot more stark in their depiction. Yeah, they serve their purpose and they're good for setting the tone. I think the way that the film starts is really strong. Like it immediately captures your attention. So in some ways he uses this device of the shock-headed Peter fairy tale and these murders in order to hook you in to the film and then he does once he's hooked you in he kind of unveils this bigger plot which kind of takes us nicely towards the ending of the film doesn't it yes perfect at the end it looks like all these murders are committed as a revenge for the young prostitute rosa capina and who was killed as she inadvertently discovered this diamond smuggling ring and in the end Farundi, her pimp is arrested but the killings as you said continue so lamento confronts riccio at his office when he's quite certain that he's orchestrated the whole thing and riccio however claims that it was del rey who did it as revenge on the members of the fauna club since he, they were the reason that he lost his job in the aftermath of uh, Capena's death and he used the information gathered by the agency to blackmail different people into committing these murders and Del Rey takes off as Riccio orders his guards to shoot him on sight and he's later gunned down outside the offices so that's the ending sort of on the surface but how do you read it? I think it's quite open to interpretation the ending I've seen the film a number of times and I think And I know maybe you won't agree with me and maybe the people listening won't agree with me, but I still don't think Pandolfi is like solely responsible. I think he's been manipulated by Riccio. He's used this weakness, this idea of his identity being lost by what's happened um, to him in terms of his failure to solve these crimes relating to the Fauna Club um, that has led to him losing his job. And he's kind of honed in on that weakness and vulnerability in him and used it to manipulate him to kind of carry out his own sense of like justice and to rid society of these deviants. That's, I, I don't know, if you would agree with that um i just think i don't think pandolfi is the ultimate villain yeah yeah you get the sense that riccio is the man behind the whole thing and i mean ostensibly he lacks motive but it's some kind of sort of perverted parlor game for him to see if he can manipulate people into doing these things he's already talked hoffman into shooting himself Mm -hmm. and like you say i don't think it's reaching too much to think that he could have influenced del rey to orchestrate these murders Mm -hmm. yeah and during this scene when lamenso is is in the office with Riccio he talks about it being a macabre treasure hunt and he's also flattering Lomenzo with mm-hmm. that's a very sharp I underestimated you and then him more or less offers Del Rey to Lomenzo while he's claiming that he would have got away with it but Lomenzo figured it all out so again it feels like he's appealing to Lomenzo's ego mm-hmm. Riccio he's also got a chess set on his desk it really doesn't yeah. feel like it's there by coincidence <laughs> it feels all. like these yeah these people are all pawns in his game yeah just because he can really yeah i think yeah it's very much a game i think there's an element of because of the kind of profession that he's in he doesn't see these people's lives maybe as worthwhile maybe it's fine he's just like well what does it matter anyway they're all like deviants and i'll just facilitate that they're at their end which is inevitably coming anyway but um yeah no I, i definitely think he is the villain of the piece isn't he and that's why yeah I suppose the the ending's so downbeat is because there's not really any sense of justice, but that seems apt considering the time that we're in. Yeah. In the film, I think you're led to believe that there's some sort of psychological reason behind the killer's action, and then that moves towards revenge, but it becomes something something bigger than that, and that's what's disturbing. It's not maybe the crimes aren't necessarily motivated by some sort of you know revenge or some sort of psychological defect, but just almost like as entertainment 
or somebody's just enacting their morality on other people. You mentioned that I think it feels like a key line where it says there's a thin line between being honest and a killer. And it feels very much like Riccio is interested in playing with that line and seeing if he can push people over from one side to the other. Yeah. And with Inspector Gomenzo, who seems quite physically weak at times, he is able to solve this mystery in the end. He does have the mental capacity to to challenge uh, Riccio, who thinks he's above everyone else and that no one can really touch him. But I mean, Riccio doesn't seem particularly bothered. I think, like you say, he just likes playing a game. It's just chess to him and he's unaffected by it all, despite all the people's lives that have been ruined. I suppose what's interesting here as well is that during this period of crime cinema, as we discussed, the vigilante cop was very much in fashion. This is a person who we were to herald as a heroic character, someone who would circumvent the law or um, or use questionable methods to bring about justice. But in Plot of Fear, that's not the case at all and um, Pandolfi is very much the fallen cop he's not a real heroic character but the film's villain despite the fact he's dispatching these people that are criminals and we call into question his morality and his retributive approach to justice so Kavara is really going against the grain here in regards to some of his contemporaries and is questioning this narrative there's ideas here about who wields the power Obviously, it's not even Pandolfi that's really wielding the power here. It's it's uh, Riccio, as well as like who makes the decisions, whose definition of justice are we following, and the fine line between justice and vengeance. But what I think is really clever here about Kavara's film is that in the Jalo, we tend to focus on a number of characters, and we as the audience, as well as typically the film's protagonists, try to narrow down this pool of suspects. But in Plot of Fear, it's the opposite. Inspector Gomenzo is actually widening his pool of suspects as he discovers more and more people connected to these murders, uh, which are very different to how they appear on the surface. This film was made post Profondo Rosso. A lot of these later 1970s jolly tend to go a very sleazy route, but this is going in a different sort of strand along with the Sunday Women as well, which offers up a bit more social critique. Il Mostro is another title that we'll return to in the future that also includes these these themes. And it's a strand of films that haven't really been explored that much, I think. No, I, I certainly agree with you on that. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that are kind of talking about the ideology behind a film like this, or at least um, some of the questions that throw up in terms of, you know, the times politically and social commentary. But I don't tend to see that too often. I think, again, people tend to view these films against their kind of criteria of the shadow. And I'm not meaning that in a way of like everyone listening, having a go if you're being slightly disappointed by the way that it's panned out, considering how it how it begins but yeah it's nice to see that move away from like you're saying that there's obviously the really um sleazy films of this time but this is a film that kind of goes in the opposite direction and tries to say something that has say something with a bit more substance yeah and as you might know by now if you listen to us a few times you know that we've got a soft spot for these sort of maybe underappreciated films or the films that dare to do something different within the framework of the genre yeah definitely and I think for me Plot of Fear is probably one of my favourites I think once I said on on Twitter I much preferred Plot of Fear to Black Belly of the Tarantula and that's not to say Black Belly of the Tarantula is bad I just I like it but I I prefer this film I remember someone going mad at me how how dare you say this is like a better (laughs) film but I just think it's more interesting and I think for people maybe it's your first time watching it or you haven't watched it in a while but it's a good film to revisit knowing what happens and I'm sure there's some logical inconsistencies if I really picked it apart but I think it's it's good to know where it's heading and then you can pick up on these small moments that reveal a little bit more you know things that people say that have more significance on the revelation yeah we like an ambiguous ending don't we it's good we're not really sure what's what exactly has happened and there's no sense of justice 
Yeah. I do agree with you as well. I think this is a better film than Black Badly or the Tarantula. That's obviously not a bad film. I enjoy it mm-hmm. very much, but this is so much more interesting and you can see so much more of Kavar in this film, which makes me appreciate it as well. The fact that he had more free reigns and got to explore these themes within a Jallo. It's a good film for him to be remembered by. And I think I would assume that it's a film that he was quite proud of. Yeah, I'd hope so, seeing as he put so much of himself into it. I mean, his son talks really highly of the film and his father's approach to it. Um, so that's nice to see that that recognition because like everyone listening to this will be aware of it. The Jago kind of does get reduced down to these very simplistic elements. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes you lose sight of the fact that no, like like sometimes I'll think, Am I just looking into these films too much? Which is probably true in some cases. <laughs> Which is probably, it's probably true. true knowing me, because I'm very like overly analytical. But then when you hear someone like his son like talk really proudly about the film and the influences and like what his father was trying to achieve and he talks about these you know ideas and these political components and his father is a filmmaker you realize no actually these films deserve to be treated and you know they need to be treated more than like oh well, this wasn't of the shadow blueprint like let's toss it aside it's not as good as black belly it's it's trying to appreciate for what is and realize that these filmmakers sometimes were trying to do something more than just create that standardized thriller and i i really yeah. hope that you know like this is why we do this podcast sorry i'm getting on my high horse this is why we no. do this podcast though because it would be easy for us to say oh watch back belly the tarantula you'll love that if you're a fan of the shadow but we want people to look at these other films that maybe they've they've overlooked or aren't that bothered about because that's what we're passionate about because we think this is a great film and we think people should celebrate it and look beyond those kind of rudimentary shallow aspects well said or, like holding a glass up <laughs> into the sky <laughs> <laughs> that's not to say we don't that's not to say we don't like like of course that's why we like it because i feel every show i'm going oh well this is different from your typical shadow and it's not to say that your typical shadow is bad i think it's just highlighting that difference is good because if there's like you know over a hundred of these films you want them to be different now and again certainly just take a deep breath rachel But I'll I'll do I'll talk a little bit about the production history and the first reports of the film were in the spring of 1975 when it seems to have been called just Paora and bearing the English title Notice of Execution. But by the autumn of 1975, the Pora title was still there, but the English title had been changed to Bloody Peanuts. Shooting started on November 24th with a nine-week shooting schedule, and it was shot in Milano with a few exteriors shot in, in the Rome area, and filming wrapped on February 3rd, 1976. Cavara had an experienced crew on hand. Director of photography was Franco Di Giacomo, who had shot Bertolucci's The Spider Stratagem, as well as Dario Dento's Four Flies and Grey Velvet and Aldo Lardo's Who Saw Die as well as Luigi Cozzi's The Killer Must Kill Again and editor Sergio Montanari had about 60 credits to his name including Django and he had previously edited Cavara's The Wild Eye there's some really interesting production design here I assume you've got a fair bit to say about that I'm just cracking my knuckles as we speak <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just get into the production design because 
I know that's too much to say about the fashion, but I think in terms of setting, it throws up quite a lot of interesting ideas. And you've touched on one of them yourself with the idea of these apartments feeling almost like fortified safe spaces. So Potifira's introductory scene is set in this opulent pink living room adorned with sculptures of panthers and Moorish prints. The room is filmed with eclectic art sourced from around the world, framed in the feminine space of Matty. Later on, we are shown the home that Scanavini shares with his mother, which is styled in somewhat of a similar opulent fashion, but with the vivid use of the colours red and black. And I have to comment on the almost magical hallway with the mirrors and um, mirrors. Fantastic. It's it's a beautiful bit of a design in it. It feels somewhat reminiscent of Nanda Vigo's um, interiors with their clever use of light and reflection. So that's a really special moment. It feels almost like a magical realm, which I'll get into. Both the homes of Matti and Scanavini are filled with natural motifs, from flowers and oriental floral motifs to the depictions of animals such as birds and lions. And this highlights the connection between their characters and the fauna club, which in itself is a decadent botanical wonderland with connections to the natural worlds. But both homes illustrate the abundance of wealth these characters have amassed and signify them as members of the upper classes. The exotic influences further serve to highlight them as wealthy globetrotters, but also connects them to the fauna club and to their nefarious practices abroad. When we're first introduced to Riccio, we see his modernist technological office, and in amongst the brown wood and large monitors and technology, we see lots of green lush plants reminiscent of the fauna club, denoting his connection to the club and his role as a puppet master in the events that transpire. And you've already touched upon that great connection between the office of the private agency and the kind of ramshackle police archives. So that's like really, yeah. really interesting there in itself. In contrast to all these opulent homes, we have the Milanese setting of the film, where there's far more of a sense of realism and perhaps more of a true reflection of the city at the time. Milan is depicted as drab with crumbling buildings. It's a busy metropolis. It feels polluted and grey. And the home of Lomenzo, in contrast to the members of the Fauna Club, is small and modest, a flat and a rundown block. The elite members of the club lounge in palatial settings with their ornate artwork, whereas Lomenzo sits in his modest flat covered in posters. Like many other films of a similar ilk, we see this disconnect between the modest life of a police officer, who is supposedly a moral citizen upholding these moral values, and the wealthy lives of criminal deviants, which further serves to highlight this apparent sense of injustice in the film. Later on, Lomenzo visits a rundown flat block where people live on top of one another. Lomenzo and his colleague view it as an example of terrible living conditions and comment that people will still have to pay for it when it's worth nothing. We look at that squalid environment and it feels like a place that breeds violence. It's conducive to violence. There's a real sense of poverty there, and it's a rather bleak setting, which leads us to believe it's a place that fosters criminality, perhaps as a result of the awful poverty that exists there. And it very much ties into Inspector Gomenzo's feeling that there's there's pervasive cycle of violence that he's trying to fight, but is never quite able to quash. And we have these shots of Gomenzo walking around the outside of the flats, and you feel that he's trapped in this endless cycle. And it doesn't matter what he does, he's powerless to stop the cycle of uh, violence and crime. And we have this fantastical element throughout the film, as we've previously mentioned, um, in reference to the Fauna Club. All the characters in the club dress in purple, they watch this cartoon pornography which looks childlike, or is in a medium, I guess, that we associate with children from a cursory glance. Sorry for, I don't mean that in a bad way to anyone that likes comic books, I just mean it and you know, like maybe you kind of associate maybe a cartoon with, with children initially. But the actions within the cartoon are obviously anything but. Then we have the children's books, 
shock-headed Peter, which plays a prominent role throughout the film. It's used in the murders, so again we have the strange contradiction between the childlike fantasy appearance of things in the film versus the reality. And when we look at the film's more opulent interiors, it's interesting because in some respect they're used by the characters that inhabit them as a sort of fantasy realm removed from the outside world. When we look at Matty's flat, it's filled with exotic paraphernalia from around the world, which suggests wealth, obviously, but it's also this idea of Matty creating his own world removed from the bleak realities that we see through the eyes of Lomenzo. It's very much the rich isolating themselves in their own spaces, away from the outside uh, world. So there's the natural juxtapositions here in the film between the squalid streets and flats of Milan and the general poverty of the city against the opulence of the spaces of the fauna club. But there's also this juxtaposition that exists between the bleak, violent world that Inspector Lomenzo inhabits, and this fantastical, at times childlike world, which other characters seem to exist within, and with some like John moving between the two. Um, and that's what I appreciate about Plot Fear, is the way in which Kavara moves between these worlds and shows these juxtapositions, and he seemingly ruminates on why they exist and what they say about the characters that inhabit them. And I think the contrasts are balanced really well here and serve to highlight the film's ideas about society and injustice as well as security and surveillance. I mainly wanted to talk about the setting here and the way these opposing environments are constructed and contrasted against one another. But of course, fashion-wise, and there's some interesting things going on here as well. We have the aforementioned rich purple colour scheme of the Flora and Fauna Club with their ostentatious accessories that denote wealth and prestige. John and her diamond-style choker and fur coat draws similarity to the caged tiger in Hoffman's zoo and the way both John and the tiger are imprisoned by Hoffman through their criminal dealings. Lamanza's girlfriend Ruth exudes glamour and in the club scene we see that Halston disco-style in coming through in our metallic platforms. As Jean is a fashion model, a profession typical of the Jalo, we are treated to a photo shoot in which Jean and another model pose on motorbikes. Motorbikes were a common prop in the fashion shoots of these films, but what's particularly interesting about the photo shoot in Plot Fear is the similarity of Lucio Fulci's 1969 Jalo version story, in which Marissa Mel dons a similar leopard print motorcycle outfit as she poses on a motorbike. Then of course we have Inspector Lomanzo, who's dressed in a rather drab way throughout the film, which is reflective of his environment and his more unassuming nature, shall we say. And again, heartening back to my point about Matty in the worldly pink living room, we see him lounge in a sequined golden kafgan, which again signifies his worldly nature and status as a well-travelled man. And of course he is murdered by a figure in purple, which ties the murders visually to the fauna club. The score for the film was written by Daniele Patucci, a composer that I have to admit that I'm not that familiar with. He composed nearly 40 scores, including the score for Wild Beasts and José Ramón Lara's Estigma. It's a servable score and it's it works well within the context of the film, but it's not one that is particularly memorable or sticks with you once the end credits have rolled. Or do you feel differently about it? No, I think you're right. I think the main thing that I took away from the score was the almost Morricone-esque kind of breathy vocals and those initial murder scenes and you've got those kind of like guitar licks don't you yeah i think it works well in the film but i struggle to remember it now and i've rewatched it twice so that's not really a good sign in terms of of how memorable the score is at least no is that available in any capacity the score no not released on vinyl or cd as far as i know i can't imagine it's one that people are actively campaigning for i might be wrong no i think there are quite a few that I'd rather see released than this one. Yeah. If we're going to talk a little bit about the release of the film it was granted a censorship visa with an 18 certificate on August 7th 1976 and it opened in cinemas shortly after. Box office figures seems to have been quite disappointing making only 272 million lira but the film went on to be sold to several countries abroad where it was released as either Plot of Fear or as Bloody Peanuts. 
The production company set up by Kavara GPE was originally set up to produce a number of films. Ego Trip, which was supposed to star Michaela Placido again, which was set to be shot around the world, Los Angeles, New York, Japan, Singapore, New Guinea, Egypt and Sudan, as well as three European cities. There was also Rose of the Deserts. Kavara would pass away only seven years after the opening of Plot of Fear. He directed two more features in the following years, Rai Production, At Salute Pada and La Locandiera in 1980. But he also worked as both director and writer on several TV projects before his premature death in a heart attack on August 7th, 1982, at the age of 56. But he seems to be remembered fondly by everybody who's worked with him. I've watched a few featurettes and everybody who talks about him seemed to remember him with a lot of warmth and that he was a really kind and sort of generous man so it's a shame that we didn't get to see more films from him oh such a shame it's, it's always nice when you hear that people you admire or directors you admire quite conscientious and well-regarded people yeah yeah and that you said about that intro of the son that you can see on youtube yeah he speaks very highly of his father and you can see there's a lot of respect there um for him as a person and his work so yeah it's a shame i kind of wonder what would have been with his career but then knowing the Italian film industry kind of in the later years maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to make something in a similar vein no so should I offer my final thoughts on Plot of Fear though I think we've made it abundantly clear what we think of it please do so Plot of Fear is worthy of your attention as it's a wonderful example of a hybrid shadow encompassing many of the themes and ideas pertinent to contemporary Italy during the years of lead, with Cavara ruminating on power structures, injustices, moral decay, and the soon-to-be pervasive nature of technology. The film goes beyond what we typically conceive to be a shadow, utilising elements of the political thrillers and crime films of the era to create a conspiratorial story that deconstructs the shadow in order to tell a story of corruption and degeneracy. For those interested in a shadow that's more overtly political in tone, Plot of Fear is essential viewing, demonstrating Kavara's ability to make a multi-layered, intelligent genre film. And that sums up what everything that we said prior. <laughs> yeah, well said. Perhaps slightly surprising when it's a film that we talk about, it's actually available on Blu-ray. It is, yeah. It was kind of an addition that we were both excited about, weren't we, when it was announced? And yeah. it's a really nice addition by the guys at Cineploit. Yeah, definitely pick it up and support them because they've They've done some really interesting work. Love to see what they what they come up with next. Yeah, it's nice that they release films that you wouldn't typically expect. I think they've got had Killer Caught. The third Mark film. Young Vine um, and Dangerous. Yeah. So, so good support them. And if you liked watching it on Prime or if you liked your Rero edition of it, then consider upgrading because it is good on Blu-ray. You can it see does. all those diamonds glinting in HD. <laughs> So we thought we could do a little section at the end of the podcast uh, where we give some shout outs to people. Um, so please let us know if you have anything shallow or Fragments of Fear related that you think is worth a mention. We'd firstly like to congratulate our good friend David Sodergren, who has celebrated the release of his latest novel, The Shallow Inspired Dead Girl Blues. And fans of The Shallow will absolutely love this. The cover is a beautiful homage to the original Shallow paperbacks and the plot's partly inspired by David's love for The Shallow. And there's a character even in it called Willow Tzadowski, so you can't go wrong with a reference to cinema like that. David has very kindly given us a couple of copies of his book to give away. So in order to win one, all we ask that you do is go onto social media and create a post labelled with the hashtag FragmentsPods, um, answering the question, which is... What was the name of the publishing house that published the original Jagal paperbacks in Italy? So just simply, if it's Twitter or Facebook, type the answer and then hashtag FragmentsPod. 
And alternatively, you can email us your answer at Peter, what's the email address? <laughs> it's fragmentspod at gmail.com. Great. And you can order David's book on Amazon alongside his other titles, Night Shoot and The Forgotten Island. So definitely check those out. Yeah, highly recommend it. And we just want to give a shout out to our patron, Ken, who posted that he's got a movie club with his good friends, Note Taking Neil and Big Screen Steve. And they get together and they uh, talk about movies. Fragments of Fear is a part of that. And we were so pleased and proud to hear that. So we just want to give a shout out to the gang and hope that they've enjoyed Plot of Fear. So yeah, we raise a glass, well, or a uh, can of... Marks and Spencer's Mojito to you over in Indianapolis um, and we're wishing you well and we know that you can't meet up face to face at the minute so we're having to do it over Zoom or whatever it is that you use but we hope you're able to meet, meet up again in person and have a couple of drinks and some food and we really appreciate that you're having these wee Fragments of Fear meetups it really means a lot because I can't even get my own sister to listen to Fragments of Fear <laughs> so <laughs> and people have like social things around it yeah no that, that's a really great aspect so we, we were really pleased to hear that Have we any more shout-outs to give? I think that's it. We'll be back in about a month time with a new episode. But before that, we'll bring out another patron episode. Do you want to let the listeners know what we're going to talk about next on the patron exclusive episodes? Yeah, for our listeners who pledged us on Patreon, we can reveal our next bonus episode is on Christian Soderstrom's 2018 Neo Jalo Video Man. And we'll be spending the episode talking about the film as well as some of our own thoughts on what it means to be a fan of the Jalo and how our experiences of fandom change as we get older which is reflected in the film's themes. So as always, if you'd like to hear our thoughts, head on over to Patreon and pledge to Fragments of Fear. We're always very grateful to have your support. We certainly are. And you can follow us on social media if you're not already doing that. We're on Facebook, Fragments Pods, on Instagram as Fragments Pod, or on Twitter as Rachel underscore Nisbet or Senior Ward. As you said, you can reach us by mail at fragmentspod at gmail.com. You hopefully know the name of the band who have provided our fantastic theme music by now. They're called Osarks and you're listening to their cover of Ritz Ortolani's Seven Bloodstained Orchids. You can find more of their music at castleosarks.com. Well, it's been really lovely actually talking about Plot of Fear. I've had a lot of fun tonight, which is needed in these times. Um, I think we both really love the film, so it's been fun to discuss it. So thank you, Peter. And we hope you've all enjoyed listening to our thoughts. We'll be back next month with another episode. So I guess we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) 